0: I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today, my guest is Dr. Christian Luscher. Christian is a professor of neuroscience at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, where he runs a neuroscience lab studying the mechanisms that underlie drug reinforcement and addiction In the brain. Christian is also a practicing neurologist, meaning he's a physician that sees and treats patients with neurological issues. So he's both a neuroscience researcher running a lab and a physician. He is an expert in the mechanisms of drug addiction, and we discussed a range of topics in this area from what addiction is to what some key parts of the brain and what key neurotransmitter systems are involved in drug addiction, the differences in the addictive potential of different types of drugs ranging from stimulants like cocaine, nicotine, and caffeine to cannabinoids like THC to opioids and psychedelics. He also described the difference between addiction and dependency. You can be addicted to some drugs but not develop dependency and vice versa, so we talked about all of that. We also talked about some of the latest research he's done that looks at how both dopamine and serotonin systems work together to uh, regulate drug-seeking behavior in animals. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can give us a five-star review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you can also check out my new substack, .substack mindandmatter.substack.com, where I post episodes of the podcast, as well as some other content and writing that I'm doing on related topics. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. Here's my conversation with Christian Lucher. Christian Luiser, thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you start off by just telling everyone uh, who you are and what you do?
1: So my name is Christian Luiser. I'm a neurologist and professor in neuroscience at the University of Geneva in Switzerland.
0: And and what does your lab focus on?
1: So our lab is interested in the neurobiology of addiction. So we would like to know what happens in the brain if you take an addictive substance, such as cocaine or uh, any of the other, like uh, fentanyl or any of the opiates. So we would like to know how they act in the brain and what eventually how they change the behavior in those people who become addicted.
0: And as a neurobiologist, how do you think about what addiction
1: is? How would you actually define it? So for us, I mean, there are many different uh, definitions of addiction. We use a very simple one, which is essentially the consumption or the seeking of a uh, reward despite negative consequences. So we have animal models. All the research we do is in mice. We have animal models where we have mice that continue seeking a drug reward despite the fact that they uh, have a negative consequence, for example, a uh, air puff or a light uh, electric shock.
0: I see. And whether we're talking about lab mice or lab animals or humans, what distinguishes an individual that becomes addicted when they're exposed to a given drug multiple times versus one who does not? How often, in very general terms, depending on the drug, I assume it varies, but how often, how common is it in a population
1: for someone to progress to addiction versus not do that? So actually... The majority of people can use addictive drugs recreationally without ever losing control so clinical studies indicate that for the human population this is about one out of five who eventually will become addicted hmm. and a similar proportion is also observed in rats by uh, colleagues of ours in uh, bordeaux for example and uh, now also by us in mice and we see that about 20 percent of the animals who have the opportunity to self administer a drug and then have to endure this stress of being punished when they use the drug, that it's about 20% of the animals that eventually will fulfill the diagnostic criteria of addiction.
0: Hmm. So that's a similar number in both laboratory rodents and humans. Is that, how much variability is there from drug to drug? Is that specific to some drugs or, or is that generally hold across addictive drugs?
1: So the number I gave you as a drug uh, is is for cocaine. So one out of five uh, cocaine users eventually will become addicted. Hmm. Um, Obviously, for other drugs such as cannabinoids or or cannabis, uh, it is lower. And uh, for alcohol, it's even lower. But probably for opiates, it's a little higher than cocaine. So it is a sort of a a mix between different uh, drugs, and it ranges for maybe you know only a few percent for alcohol up to 30% for opioids
0: i see so so a drug could be considered the most addictive drugs such as cocaine or opioids are going to result in approximately 20 to 30% of individuals who who use recreationally transitioning into a full addiction that's right Hmm. And how much of that susceptibility versus resilience, can you talk a little bit about the the factors that determine that? How much of it is genetics and predisposition and how much of it is other factors?
1: Yeah. So actually this is really one of the focus of the current focus of our lab. We would like to understand how this uh, separation between the compulsive individuals and the ones that can recreationally use a drug uh, come about. And this is a very difficult question. So the first step that we took is to establish this uh, bimodal distribution in a uh, population of mice. So we were able to uh, generate mice who eventually really become compulsive. And in these mice, then the first question was to see what is different in their brain compared to those that uh, remain in control. So we looked into different circuits and we found one circuit that then clearly segregates between the two subpopulation, which is the connection between the orbital frontal cortex and the central part of the dorsal striatum. And if this connection is getting stronger, then we can see that compulsion emerges to the extent that this is actually a, a link of causality we have been able to do experiments where we artificially strengthen that connection such, and and that leads to compulsion in animals that initially are not compulsive. And we can do the converse. We can take animals that have a very strong connection there and uh, we depotentiate that connection and the animal will lose its compulsion.
0: Hmm. So is the idea here that you've got a population of animals, a subset of them are predisposed to developing compulsive drug behavior. And what seems to correlate with that is the strength of the circuit going from one part of the brain to another.
1: Yeah. So there's essentially three levels of trying to understand this. So we would like to know how it is induced, where it is expressed, And then what is the predisposing factor that makes the induction more likely? And so we do have a fairly good answer to the site, the locus where it is expressed is precisely this connection between the orbital frontal cortex and the dorsal striatum. We are now looking into when exactly in the process of uh, the consumption of the drug and the exposure to the punishment, this uh, strengthening emerges and then the toughest question is going to be remaining for the next years which is uh how is what's the vulnerability what's the individual vulnerability that uh, triggers that the whole process and uh, that is that is arguably the most difficult question
0: i see so we don't know the answer to that last piece in detail yet but do we know anything about the overall heritability of compulsive drug seeking how heritable is this from parent to child
1: yeah So it is interesting to know that, uh, as you already pointed out, the proportion of individuals who are addicted, who become addicted, is very similar in a human population compared to a mouse population, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that obviously, genetically, a human population is much more diverse than an inbred lab mouse population that Mm -hmm. is virtually clonal. So we don't believe, actually, that it is sort of hard-coded genetic differences, but it is more epigenetic differences that emerge based on life experience. I see. So for that, that's that's sort of the uh, overarching working hypothesis that we currently have, and experiments that are underway try to aim to see what might be different in. Uh, expression transcripts of a uh, cell in the circuit that we know ultimately then is responsible for the compulsive behavior.
0: I see, so with cocaine, You have this 20% number, approximately 20% of individuals, whether it's mice or humans will, when exposed to the drug, uh, become addicted. But because humans genetically are so much more diverse than mice who in the laboratory are bred to be very homogenous, that kind of tells you that it can't be this proportion of the population that becomes addicted. It can't be due to hard-coded genetic factors. It has to be something else. Absolutely, yes. This is a good summary of what I just said. Absolutely. Um, one distinction that gets made in the literature by by you and others that I think is important to delineate for people is the difference between drug seeking and drug
1: taking behavior.
0: Can you talk about those two, that distinction, and why it's
1: important? So this is a distinction that uh, Barry Everett has introduced to, to the field, and it distinguishes the uh, compulsive nature of taking a drug, as opposed to the the compulsive nature of seeking the drug. And it is true, and that's the argument by Barry, that uh, drug addicts uh, are more concerned about the seeking and the taking itself than actually is sort of a a secondary step. And so this is a difference that uh, we and others have looked at. And we find, however, that the uh, core element of the compulsion also resides in this orbitofrontal to uh, central part of the dorsal striatum. So this part of the circuit is actually shared between behavior that is in, looks into compulsive seeking and compulsive taking of the drug. Hmm.
0: So drugs, so in a real world situation, drug seeking in simple terms would be like, you know if you're going to the part of town where the drug dealer hangs out and you're looking you know, you're looking for the excitement or whatever of actually getting the drug, and that's distinct to some extent from the actual effects of taking the drug itself.
1: Absolutely, so there is good evidence that different parts of the brain ultimately drive these two different behaviors, but the compulsive nature of those two actually share a, uh, an overlapping circuit.
0: Hmm. And, and you've mentioned already a couple times two parts of the brain, the orbital frontal cortex, the striatum can you break down in very simple terms what we know about these two parts of the brain uh very generally speaking what kinds of behaviors do they tend to be involved in
1: so i mean probably it makes sense to take a step back and look at the initial target of addictive drugs so all addictive drugs initially act on the mesolimbic dopamine system, which has its origin at the tiny little nucleus at the tip of the brainstem called the ventral tegmental area. This is a nucleus that eventually that mostly has uh, dopamine neurons and projects to what is called the ventral striatum or the nucleus accumbens. And this dopamine in the nucleus accumbens then modulates and changes synaptic transmission that arises from cortical inputs, so from the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and other parts of the brain. And when those afferents are active at the same time as dopamine is massively released through the exposure to a drug, then the synaptic strength changes at these synapses. And if that happens in a repetitive fashion, then the whole process Gets sort of shifted from ventral to more dorsal parts. And that's when we arrive in the dorsal striatum, which is a big area in rodents. It's a little smaller in uh, humans, but it has many functions, one of which is related to motor execution, but it also has a role in controlling habits, so actions that we just do automatically. It has a role in goal-directed behavior, actions that we plan and, and we, we really work towards uh, obtaining it. And there, as in the ventral striatum, we have a top-down cortical control And one of the cortices that controls the dorsal striatum is the orbitofrontal cortex, the part of the cortex that just sits above the eyes of an individual, which is why it's called orbitofrontal. I think an important distinction that you just
0: mentioned is between habitual and goal-directed behavior. Can you unpack that a little bit more for people and and which of these, and just sort of repeat and unpack which parts of the brain's under normal conditions, even for for a non-addicted person, uh, which parts of the brain are responsible for habitual versus goal-oriented behavior?
1: Yeah. So we have essentially three types of behaviors we're interested in, in the context of drug addiction there's the goal-directed behavior so this is behavior that we plan and we have a, a goal that we want to achieve then there is habitual behavior that is a behavior that becomes automatic and sometimes even without being conscious is executed and the third one is compulsion which is either an extreme form of habitual behavior So uh, it is a habit that we can no longer get rid of, even if Mm. we want to. Or it is an extreme form of goal-directed behavior where only this one goal counts and all others are disregarded. And all of these sort of are actually coded in cells of the striatum, in the dorsal striatum in particular, uh, with uh, some subdivisions uh, that, um, that, however, are to some extent overlapping. I see. So a goal-directed behavior
0: is like a behavior that we think about. We plan it out, we have a goal in mind, and then we, we do something to try and achieve that goal. A habit is more or less unconscious. We sort of just do it repetitively without thinking about it. And when either of those behaviors becomes very extreme, it can result in a compulsion.
1: Absolutely. So an example of a habit is the person who smokes a cigarette and opens a package, uh, lights the cigarette, and starts smoking without even noticing that she or he did that, Uh, a goal-directed Uh, behavior in the context of drug addiction may be someone who is, let's say, even incarcerated and has a very specific plan and over over days and and, and really plans to achieve seeking the drug and eventually obtaining the drug, which may go through many different steps. And that would be an example of a goal-directed behavior. So clearly from these examples, we already see that in drug addiction, both actually do play a role.
0: I see. And then, you know, you had mentioned this, this very interesting part of the brain that has a lot of dopamine neurons and dopamine is somehow involved. Well, it's very involved in the the process of addiction. And it sounded like you were saying that the dopamine is having a modulatory effect. And, and what yeah. I took that to mean was it's um, able to, it's able to change circuits such that whether or not a behavior is being mediated by one circuit or another, sort of shifts. It can sort of push it, say, from being goal-directed to habitual, or perhaps in the other direction as well. Is that is that a good way to think about it?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, there are different schools in the uh, in, in the field of neurobiology of addiction. So, there is a school that says that we can explain drug addiction by changes in dopamine signaling in itself. First, I have to say that probably everybody agrees that the defining commonality of addictive drugs is that they increase dopamine. Now, those who say it is, eventually then the changes in behavior are mediated by a decreased dopamine signaling, for example, because there are lower amounts of numbers of uh, a certain dopamine receptor. And Nora Wolkoff has very good evidence for this kind of scenario. And on the other hand, there are others who say, well, actually, what happens is sort of a sensitization of the whole uh, circuit. And uh, that then eventually leads to um, uh, a, 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 a signaling that is exacerbated. And, uh, and uh, so there are other people who say this, so for example, uh, Anuel Sahamaha and Terry Robinson are defenders of that uh, sort of uh, hypothesis. And we have, on the other hand, looked neither on the down nor on the up, but rather on the sideways. So we found the most compelling evidence in our experimental approach was to show that dopamine actually doesn't change that much in its signaling, but it leaves a trace on glutamatergic transmission precisely from cortex to the striatum. So when dopamine is very high and these afferents are active, they change their efficacy. They become what's called potentiated. And that potentiation then has an impact on behavior. Hmm. So this is sort of buying into the idea that the core of drug addiction is what we call drug evoked synaptic plasticity. This is a term that goes back to the early 2000s where uh, Mark Angles in Rob Malenka's lab was able to identify a first form of drug evoked synaptic plasticity by simply looking at glutamatergic transmission 24 hours after a first injection. And what he saw is that uh, in the neurons of the ventral tegmental area, when they receive glutamatergic inputs, that input becomes strengthened after the exposure to drug, regardless which drug it is, as long as it increases dopamine, which we said is the defining the commonality. And that from there on, we and others have then described many other forms of drug evoked synaptic plasticity, not only in the ventral tegmental area, but also in the accumbens and lately in the dorsal striatum. And then by looking exactly when they arise and how they arise and what happens if one manipulates these synapses, we were able to map these synaptic changes to specific elements of the adaptive behavior.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like, it sounds like perhaps, you know, when you, when you take a drug or when an animal takes a drug, you have the, the drug evoking, um, changes in the dopamine system but it almost sounded like whether or not the animal progresses to uh, a compulsion or to addiction might depend very strongly on what happens in the animal in the hours or days after they take that drug not not even necessarily when the drug is in
1: their system but what's happening afterwards is that accurate well actually it's it's triggered at the moment they take the drug but Mm -hmm. the repercussions are visible afterwards so it is really this idea of the drug leaving a trace behind after it's been cleared from the brain so that i think it was a when we first saw that that we can actually look into the brain by uh, probing the strength of synapses that we can tell with certainty whether the animal had been exposed or not to cocaine for example i found that very interesting and when then we realized that this is not only something specific to cocaine, but to all addictive drugs, then we really started working on this uh, uh, very intensely. And we went even a step further, and we sort of replaced the drug by a stimulation of the dopamine neurons itself. So rather than using a pharmacological agent to activate these neurons, we used an optogenetic approach. That is, we put Channel rhodopsin into the dopamine neurons, gave the animal the control over the laser to activate these dopamine neurons. And when we did so, we actually ended up with a super addiction. Hmm. So the essence of the drug addiction can be really reduced to this self-stimulation. And when we do that, we find all the adaptive changes in the synapses as well as the behavior, and ultimately end up with three times as many compulsive animals compared to cocaine so in other words 60% of the animals that can self-stimulate the VTA dopamine neurons eventually are compulsive I see
0: so if you take a group of lab mice and you give them cocaine about 20% of them will become compulsive cocaine seekers and they'll you know constantly want to press a lever to get more cocaine or something like this but when you create, when you create lab mice, that are specially engineered so that you as the experimental scientist can turn on those dopamine neurons in the uh, particular part of the brain above the brainstem that we're talking about. The animals will then press a lever and instead of getting cocaine, it will just cause those neurons to become active and that's super addicting. So 60% of the animals will then just compulsively light up those neurons.
1: Yes, absolutely. So it's in the ventral tegmental area. And when you stimulate, and when the animal has the opportunity to self-stimulate, we don't even do that. Mm -hmm. So the animal presses a lever, and that leads to a dopamine release that is massive, and eventually to a transition towards compulsion in 60% of the animals. Hmm. Interesting. So we've talked about dopamine and the VTA,
0: the ventral tegmental area so far. We've talked about the striatum, which sounds like the part of the brain that is very much involved in selecting which actions the animal is going to do, whether habitual or goal-directed. And you've mentioned the inputs to that area from the orbital frontal cortex. So can you talk to us about the orbital frontal cortex? What is it generally doing in a normal animal? What happens, for example, when you um, lesion that
1: area of the brain? So there is much evidence that suggests that the orbital frontal cortex codes for the decision that an individual takes. So it's sort of a center that uh, weighs the benefit and the cost of an action. And then according to that equation, will guide the striatum to select the action that needs to be done. So that's in a nutshell, the uh, one of the functions of the orbital frontal cortex. I see.
0: So you can create animals that are either um, a subset or either addicted to cocaine or addicted to simply causing their dopamine neurons to fire. What happens if you then withdraw that stimulus from those animals? What, what happens when you remove either the cocaine or the ability to self-stimulate the VTA neurons?
1: So you're now talking of what happens if the animal gets into withdrawal, Mm -hmm. And there are major differences between the type of drug that we're talking about. So opiates in particularly will will lead to a very strong withdrawal syndrome. And that is what defines actually dependence. So we, we clearly distinguish dependence from addiction. So dependence is defined by the appearance of a withdrawal syndrome upon abrupt termination of the exposure to an addictive drug. And that again works through entirely different circuit and has little to do with the ventral tegmental area or the orbitofrontal cortex. So this is a sort of a specialty of uh, opiates. It happens to a much lesser extent also with cocaine. So uh, there are circuits that we and others also study, which mediate sort of this aversive element of no longer having the drug. And obviously an individual would like to, avoid that, which is why we call this negative reinforcement. So the avoidance of this negative state drives further consumption through a different set of circuit compared to the ones we described initially, which originates in the ventral tegmental area, which really is the positive reinforcement. So it's the seeking of more reward, whereas the other one is the seeking of avoidance of aversive states.
0: Hmm. So all addictive drugs have an effect on the dopamine system, but two different addictive drugs can have very different mechanisms of action. Um, and even though they have something in common, they have a lot of divergent properties in terms of what's driving the addiction. And it also sounds like you're, you're making an important distinction between addiction and dependence. So it's possible to be addicted to a drug, but not dependent on it. And whether or not you're dependent depends on whether you're going to have these withdrawal symptoms.
1: Sure. And there are even drugs that make you dependent, but not addicted, like hmm. uh, caffeine. You are dependent on caffeine because if you have a, if you drink like two three coffees a day and one day you stop, you will have a headache. And that is your withdrawal syndrome. So by definition, you were dependent on coffee. But coffee does not lead to this compulsive consumption that we see with cocaine or uh, fentanyl. Interesting. So so
0: in the case of cocaine and caffeine, you're talking about two different stimulants, but they're both stimulants. Cocaine is addictive and it does not often cause
1: dependence. Caffeine frequently causes dependence, but it's not addictive. Absolutely. And it does not increase the dopamine in the mesolympic system. So this actually turns out to be a sort of a very good biomarker. As long as a substance does not increase dopamine in the nucleus accumbens in the ventral striatum, it's probably safe to say that it has a very low addiction liability.
0: Hmm. I do want to talk to you about some of the differences between different types of psychostimulant drugs. So on this podcast, I've talked to a lot of people about psychedelics, especially um, cannabinoids. We haven't talked a lot about stimulants until this conversation. So we've talked about cocaine so far. You've already told us an interesting difference between cocaine and caffeine in terms of their addictive and dependency potential. Can you describe a little bit more detail about cocaine and caffeine and what the different sort of mechanisms might be that explain that difference?
1: Yes. But first, I guess it's really important to make the distinction between psychedelics and addictive drugs. Hmm. So LSD and psilocybin and other psychedelics are not addictive. So these are not substances that induce that state of compulsion. And again, are not substances that increase dopamine in the mesolimbic system. So that is an important distinction. Then within the uh, you know stimulants there are some which are addictive such as cocaine or amphetamine or or ecstasy to a lesser degree and others that are not addictives like caffeine that you just mentioned and that has to do with their molecular target so it is a not trivial task to explain how this relatively large group of addictive substances and depending on how you define them we're talking between 12 and 20 different types of uh, substances, how they would converge onto having one defining common final pathway. And so we and us have spent quite some time to try to understand how this comes about. And we know, for example, we know the molecular targets of most of them. We know that cocaine targets monoamine transporters, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. And it is clear that if you take out the dopamine transporter, the binding of cocaine to the dopamine transporter, you end up with a non, uh, I mean, in these, in these transgenic animals, cocaine can no longer induce compulsion. So this is, you know, the, the really the dissection to the molecule of how the whole process starts. Now for uh, uh, opiates, it's the mu receptors among the three receptors that is really important. And if you knock out the mu receptors, then all addictive properties of opiates are gone. So there are a number of things and that it breaks them eventually down into two, three different mechanisms. So either a drug directly activates the dopamine neurons in the tegmental area, that's the case, for example, for nicotine, or it works, as I said, like cocaine does, by blocking reuptake. So since dopamine is a somewhat expensive molecule for the brain to produce, there's a sort of uh, very nice recycling path in place. And if that gets blocked because the reuptake is is pharmacologically blocked, then dopamine increases. And the last mechanism, the third one, is an indirect one where the drugs don't actually work on the dopamine on, but they work on GABA neurons, which are upstream of the dopamine neurons, and normally inhibit those dopamine neurons. And when these drugs work on those, they shut down the activity of the GABA neurons, which usually inhibits the dopamine neurons, and it, resulting, this inhibition leads to an increase of dopamine. And examples of drugs that are part of that class are the opiates and cannabis.
0: I see. So if we take a te- let me try and summarize that. So multiple addictive drugs ranging from cocaine to nicotine to opioids, they all uh, ultimately converge on the fact that they can um, increase dopamine levels, but some of them do that directly and some of them do that indirectly. And there's very different uh, pathways, very different mechanisms they can take to actually achieve that final common end. And the details distinguish sort of both the subjective effects and also the propensity to actually become uh, addictive.
1: Yes, absolutely. So this is this is a very good summary. And it it is just it's, it's important to realize that they really sort of all converge onto that system. And it's also important to realize there was still a couple that we don't exactly know how they how they work. And the most prominent is alcohol. So alcohol clearly increases the dopamine, it is addictive, we all know that. But we don't have a good molecular explanation how it increases the dopamine and that is largely explained by the fact that it has so many molecular targets Mm. you know unlike opiates really that only have three receptors in the brain alcohol binds to uh, a plethora of different receptors and so it's very difficult to dissect that entire molecular mechanism Mm -hmm. so um going
0: back to psychostimulants for a minute We've, we've touched on cocaine, nicotine, and caffeine. Um, each one has a different uh, level of addictiveness. You've already mentioned that caffeine is actually not addictive, but you can become dependent on it. Cocaine and nicotine are both addictive, but they act in, in slightly different ways in terms of how they affect the dopamine system. Is there like an overall... Besides just the general subjective notion that they are stimulants and they sort of wake you up, is there is there a good unifying way to think about what makes a drug a stimulant as opposed to another type of drug?
1: No, as you probably just said, I mean, it is a drug that makes you more alert. And so, uh, you know, norepinephrine, uh, there are different systems that can do that. And they all have in common that you do, you have to sleep less and uh Yes. Maybe also modulator of the orexin system could uh, be defined as stimulants. So yes, that's, uh, that's a good definition.
0: One other type of psychostimulant that I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not sure if this is your specific area of expertise, but I assume you can tell us a lot of um, valuable information here are prescription stimulants. So as I think many people know at this point, things like Adderall and Ritalin are very widely prescribed. Yeah. I know many people in my own life who have prescriptions. They're prescribed to adults, they're prescribed to adolescents and even children. How does um, Adderall or prescription amphetamine like this work in comparison to these other psychostimulants? And then are they addictive and can they cause dependency?
1: Yeah, so there are there's a, a number of maybe half a dozen of different molecules, modafinil is, is another one of those. And they do clearly have effects on monoamines. Again, their pharmacology is very complex. I do not know all the details of all of those, but it is clear that some of them do have uh, an addiction liability. So modafinil, for example, seems to, you know, not as strong as amphetamines, but it is clearly also an addictive substance. So it is, again the sort of the profile of which of the monoamine they increase most that, that it has, a, has, a, has an impact on how addictive they actually are.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's the role of developmental timing in in defining the probability of transitioning to compulsion? My, my guess would be that the earlier on in, in life that you expose an animal to a potentially addictive drug, the more likely they are to transition to such a, a compulsive state.
1: Well, clearly from the clinical literature, we know that there are some uh, critical periods of drug addiction and adolescence is generally recognized to be one of the critical periods. Probably even also old age to some extent can be a critical period where people are particularly vulnerable. And uh, we have to model this also in animals in order to have a better mechanistic insight. Um, I'm not aware of a sort of a unifying hypothesis that fully explains, it has a lot to do with the control of the prefrontal cortex of the ventral striatum. That is one of the routes that, uh, others are pursuing in order to understand how exactly this, uh, vulnerability comes about.
0: Interesting. So we've mentioned uh, dopamine a lot so far, and I want to talk about it just a little bit more before touching on some other transmitter systems. You've done a nice job at explaining uh, a lot of the details so far. The thing that I, I always hear people say, and I remember learning this in school, even in grade school, is they would talk about, uh, they would use a metaphor of you know a drug hijacking your dopamine system. So a lot of people will be familiar with that, that imagery, do you think that's a fair way to for someone who doesn't have a science background to start to think about addiction, or is that incomplete in some important way?
1: No, I think it's a, it's a good image of what actually happens. So uh, hijacking in the sense that this is a stimulation that is stronger than a uh, stimulation in response to a natural reward, and it is hijacking because even if dopamine goes back to baseline there are circuits in the brain that are changed and that eventually when it builds up can lead to altered behavior and eventually addiction in some individuals. Hmm. But I guess in order to better understand this, it is probably helpful to go back and ask a little bit, what is the physiological role of the neurons in the ventral tegmental area? And this is actually a matter of much debate. So, uh, There's a lot of colleagues who work on that, and we also have done some of the work. And as always, it's more complicated than what we initially thought. But I guess it's fair to say that there's still one function that under some circumstances definitely is present and is very important, and that is this function of reward prediction error. That is, these cells code for the difference of what one expects as a reward and what you actually obtain. And so if you receive something, a big reward, out of the blue, by total surprise, that's something you didn't expect that strongly activates the dopamine neurons in the VTA. If, on the other hand, the reward is entirely predicted, let's say, I don't know, your salary at the end of the month, this is something that you were promised and you receive it, and uh, so there's no prediction error because you receive exactly the amount that you were promised so at that time the cells will not react if on the other hand you are promised a reward but then you don't receive it then there's a negative prediction error so you were expecting more and you receive less and that shuts down the system and these differences have then been conceptualized As a learning signal. And that's really interesting in the context of drug addiction, because it means that what the drugs actually generate is a pathological learning signal that leads to a maintained prediction error that eventually drives the behavior into something very narrow and only linked to the seeking and the taking of the drug.
0: I see. So these neurons are, in effect, uh, encoding surprise.
1: To some extent, yes, surprise, but surprise of receiving a reward. That's the initial postulate by Wolfram Schultz, and he has made these uh, initial observations in 1998, I believe, published maybe a year or two later. And that really has been very influential in conceptualizing the role of these dopamine neurons. By now using uh, higher resolution techniques and uh, being able to follow these cells in uh, more naturalistic behaviors and during the entire phase of the training, we know that everything is a little bit more complicated that to some extent, they even also code for movement. They code for sometimes for saliency. So uh, independent of whether it's a reward or a punishment. And then there seem to be even dopamine neurons that are specialized to respond when one receives a punishment.
0: I see. So dopamine neurons are not all the same. There's differences among- No, them.
1: they're not all the same. So there's clearly differences among the dopamine neurons and it depends exactly where they're located in the ventral to the area and where they project to. I see.
0: I want to ask you another question about withdrawal and in general, so let's say you get an animal addicted to a substance that it becomes dependent on and then you take the drug away and the animal goes into withdrawal. If abstinence is maintained, will the circuits in the brain that were underlying the addictive behavior and the dependency naturally sort of revert back to their their prior state or does there have to be like an active unlearning process there?
1: So for the addiction part, clearly there has to be an uh, an active unlearning part to it. For the dependence, it's less clear, and uh, the observation is that after maximum 72 hours, the entire withdrawal syndrome is gone, and then we basically start from zero again. For the addiction part, it is equally clear that uh, individuals who have been abstinent for prolonged periods of time still have an increased risk of relapsing compared to someone who has never been exposed to a drug. Turning
0: now to another class of drugs that I'd like you to briefly comment on, you very briefly mentioned it earlier, but we've talked about psychostimulants, we've touched on opioids and alcohol. You mentioned cannabinoids earlier. So if we focus on the principal cannabinoid in cannabis, which people are consuming recreationally, THC, what is the sort of addiction and dependency liability for THC and and what kinds of mechanisms might distinguish this drug from cocaine, say?
1: Yeah. So this is a obviously very interesting molecule and it binds to receptors that we know well. So these are the so-called CB1 receptors, which are coupled to G protein. This is a, a big, big family of uh, receptors in the brain. They all have the same structure and they all control G proteins. And in particular case of the CB1, it's uh, the GIO type of G proteins that uh, are activated. And it is part of the class of drugs that works indirectly. So the primary target of the THC is actually the GABA neurons in the ventral tegmental area. And what the cannabinoids or the, or the cannabis does there, the THC, it binds to receptors both on the cell body, as well as on the terminal of the axon that is releasing the GABA onto the dopamine neurons. And through different molecular mechanism, they lead to a shutting down of these GABA neurons and they block the release of GABA. And so basically this GABA neuron is taken out and as a result, the dopamine neuron is disinhibited. So what makes now, so this is the sort of the basis of addiction to THC. What makes this drug even more, I would say problematic is that it interferes with a endogenous system, so a system that the brain has itself of so-called endocannabinoids. So they're not exactly THC, but there's something similar that also binds to the cB1 receptors. And basically what this what these endocannabinoids do in the brain, they fine-tune all synaptic communication between cells. It is typically a neuron, what we call postsynaptic, so, the the, the the neuron that receives the information that releases these endocannabinates that then travel back onto the axons of the cell that sends the information and controls the output of that cell in a very, very fine-tuned fashion. And so if people smoke THC, then of course, all this fine-tuning disappears. And this fine-tuning is really important for a lot of forms of learning which explains why people who smoke a lot often have problems at school
0: so what is the addiction potential for thc relative to something like cocaine
1: oh it's definitely lower that that is that's obvious so uh, it's roughly around 10% but with uh, recreational use over years then you end up with uh, with with 10% of uh, of of THC users that eventually have a problematic compulsive use. I see. And then what about dependency? Can you become dependent on THC? Well, to some extent, but I think it's not a a very strong stereotypic uh, withdrawal syndrome. Yes, they do have some, but it's not comparable to a opioid withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So turning now to, I want to talk about another transmitter
0: serotonin. I know that you've done some work on serotonin in terms of its role in addiction. You mentioned earlier uh, the key fact about psychedelics, which is that they're non-addictive and as many people who've listened to some of the previous conversations I've had on here will know, uh, psychedelics are known to activate certain serotonin receptors in the brain. Is there any tie-in there? Is that have something important to do with the fact that they're non-addictive? And then more generally, what is the role of serotonin in this whole addiction process?
1: Yes. So clearly, drugs that work on serotonin system are not addictive, and probably the most uh, often used or prescribed drug are the SSRI, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like citalopram, and uh, what they do is they block these the reuptake of serotonin, and through that, increase serotonin in the brain. And this is mostly the indication is mostly depression. So they do have, in some people, a very beneficial effect for that, and do not induce addiction, nor dependence. And so that that is clearly different. And, and, And for the psychedelics, it's not the transport, but as you rightly pointed out, it's some specific receptors that are activated. And of course, that leads to a totally different experience, which can result in a very strong distortion of perception. So people see color differently, forms, shapes, or hear things that don't exist. So this is the if you will, the appeal for some people to take uh, psychedelics. Now, what could be the effect of serotonin on the addiction process, and in particularly the transition from a controlled recreational use to a compulsive use? And this is indeed a study that we have just recently published. And it was sort of inspired by work uh, out of uh, several labs with uh, doing behavioral pharmacology that were suggesting that somehow serotonin might actually be breaking being, making the transition less likely. So we took a uh, approach in our mouse, in our animals by generating a uh, transgenic mouse that uh, had a serotonin transporter, that no longer bound cocaine, because cocaine, as I said, increases dopamine, but also increases serotonin. Hmm. So in these mice, we now have cocaine increasing only dopamine, but not serotonin. And when we looked at the transition to addiction, we realized that it is not 20%, but now it's 60% of the mice of the cohort that eventually become became compulsive. Hmm. So there we had it. So we had evidence that yes indeed serotonin sort of makes the transition towards compulsion less likely. Hmm. So and the, in order to
0: really yes the the experiment you just described it's reminding me of your previous finding with the optogenetic self stimulation.
1: Yes, it's so it's exactly now we could actually do the second experiment where we would do a pure dopaminergic type of addiction. That is our self-stimulation of the VTA dopamine neuron. And now what we can do is we can use SSRI like citalopram to artificially Mm -hmm. increase the serotonin level. And when we do that, we drop from the 60% of dopamine neuron self-stimulation to only 20% in dopamine neuron self-stimulation plus citalopram. Hmm. So we had it sort of in both directions. And from there on, we uh, did isolate the uh, circuit and we uh, identified again that it was this OFC2 central part of the dorsal striatum that was responsible for that. And that serotonin through a very specific receptor did control whether that connection became stronger or not. And so when serotonin is here, that connection is less likely to become potentiated, which is why we only have 20%. And if serotonin cannot act on that receptor, we are up at 60%. I see.
0: So so compulsive addictive behavior involves this critical circuit going from the orbital frontal cortex to this place called the striatum, and whether or not that connection strengthens. And, and one of the key determining factors, it seems, is... Uh, both the level of dopamine and serotonin
1: yes yeah. so dopamine pushes towards strengthening and serotonin makes that strengthening less likely hmm. so it dopamine therefore pushes towards compulsion where serotonin is making this less likely so
0: you mentioned that you were effectively giving uh, lab mice SSRIs in these experiments. Is there any data out there showing that humans who are taking SSRIs are less likely to
1: become addicted to cocaine or other drugs? I don't think so, because if you think in humans, which are not transgenic, of course, uh, cocaine already increases both dopamine and serotonin. So that increase is already maximal. Mm. and you cannot add by taking an SSRI at the same time. So I think that it explains why it is not a good prevention strategy to take an SSRI along with cocaine. I see.
0: Could, could that conceivably work in, in the 20% of people that do transition to compulsion if it's true that the reason that they are part of that 20% is some sort of deficit in the serotonin increase?
1: This is a very appealing hypothesis that we're now pursuing. Yes, that could be one of the many possibilities why an individual is more vulnerable. This is indeed interesting, and it could be that uh, somewhere along the line of the entire cascade of releasing dopamine, binding to a receptor, the receptor signaling, and so forth, there could be some form of deficit that would make this individual particularly uh, vulnerable to drug addiction. Hmm. So one of the key things
0: that I think that we've discussed so far is on the one hand, um, there are many different uh, drugs of abuse. They all have different abuse liabilities or, or you know, uh, different tendencies for someone to become addicted or to become dependent on the drug. And that's because they all act through different mechanisms. And there's many different ways that, that they can actually affect things in the brain. But at the same time, there is this sort of core mechanism at the center of addictive behavior, which is uh, the ability of a drug to tap into this mesolimbic dopamine system. So despite all the differences uh, between drugs and their mechanisms, there is this sort of common thread running through all of them. And in that context, I'm wondering if you can talk about addiction to things other than drugs. And so in particular, people have talked a lot about uh, food addiction or say social media addiction. Do these types of addiction, uh, is that merely a metaphor or can you, does that truly tap into the same uh, circuitry at the end of the day?
1: My hunch it is the same sort of mechanisms and same overarching uh, hypothesis that would apply to these non-substance dependent addictions. Now, obviously as a scientist who does animal experimentation, we would like to understand the precise mechanism of how this is done. And so, so far that has been more difficult than we thought because it's not so easy, for example, to get the mouse to gamble. <laughs> there are some tests where you can do that, and but it's not to the extent that you would make a mouse eventually become a pathological gambler. And it is also, it's a very tough thing to do because... Uh, we know that uh, gambling is something that has a lifetime prevalence pathological gambling have a lifetime prevalence of uh, roughly 1% so 99% of people can occasionally uh, you know gamble a little bit and they never lose control and this is 1% which is 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 eventually uh, becoming addicted and so how you model this in a in a in a mouse is is a very very tough uh, question hmm. Similarly, for food addiction, it's also, it's, it's, there are, there's very good evidence that uh, highly palatable food activates the dopamine system and that through these mechanisms, things happen. But uh, food intake involves a lot of additional circuits, some of which we've also studied. And uh, it's not a straightforward thing that you can just take uh, what we know from drug addiction to other addictions. There are details that matter that need to be worked out. Interesting. So as someone who's been
0: studying drug addiction and, and addiction for, for many years, has this, you know, has your research impacted how, how you think about your own consumption habits in your own life, whether it comes to food or to technology or anything?
1: No, not really. I mean, I'm not a person. I I probably I'm part of the, uh, 80% 80% majority who would not lose control. So I'm actually, I'm really separating what I do professionally from what I do uh, privately. So I'm not, uh, I'm not particularly uh, inclined in doing any self-tests on that. So what, um, what areas
0: of research are, are you guys actively pursuing right now or what's on the horizon?
1: Yeah. So what I said, what really is interesting for us is to try to understand the individual vulnerability before a uh, mouse gets exposed for the very first time to an addictive substance. So this is clearly a, uh, a big question that we have in the lab. Um, we also need to better understand how drug addiction may extend to other Uh, addictions. And and the one that we are closest in uh, working on is uh, food addiction. So we have some experiments where we look at circuit that control hedonic food intake. So intake of food that is not directly motivated by uh, energy demands. And so you can show in a mouse that uh, a mouse will continue taking a highly palatable food, even if it exceeds its uh, energy demands. So these are some of the questions we're currently uh, working on in the lab. Hmm. One final question in terms of
0: the the issue of vulnerability to addiction. We've mentioned... Um, this 20% number for cocaine, about 20% of lab animals will become compulsive cocaine seekers. When you give animals that first administration of cocaine, is there anything behaviorally that's different in that very first administration that allows you to predict which ones will then uh, go on to compulsive behavior?
1: So we found, and others have reported this before us, that uh, impulsivity is a behavior that correlates with uh, subsequent addiction. That is animals that cannot refrain of pressing a lever, even if it's uh, during a timeout period, for example, these are the individuals that are more likely to become compulsive in the end. So yes, there are some of the behavioral uh, observations that help us delineate between what's gonna happen in the future, but they are not 100%. So we, we need to do better on those. And we're including now additional parameters that would allow us to better understand this. Interesting.
0: Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave people with in terms of the general area of research that you focus on in addiction generally?
1: Well, I mean, it is, as probably became clear during our discussion, also as many other fields in the neuroscience is something that uh, advances in small steps. So I think it is very important, at least to me it is, that one builds on solid ground and that the next experiment sort of touches back with what happens and either confirms or refines the finding of, uh, of previous experiments. So throughout the entire now 20 plus years that I had my lab, I, uh, I, I always try to sort of build this uh, one step at a time, and uh, I, I think that is that is for me something uh, very important. Uh, it is also important for me to say that all of that can only be achieved because we can still do animal experimentation, and that is not something that is a given. And there, the r- rules and 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 and. and requirements to do so become more and more complex. And this is probably something that is also important for the public to know that uh, should we no longer be able to do animal experimentation, it would be very difficult to progress in this uh, steps towards something that eventually, obviously, a a long-term goal would have an impact on uh, human treatment. So a sort of a translational Way of uh, of doing uh, of doing the the research. Hmm. We have ourselves tried a little bit to uh, endeavor in some of these translational aspects, and one idea that we uh, developed in our lab is to look how we could emulate what we learned from optogenetics to use with therapy methods, therapeutic methods that are actually currently used in humans. So rather than trying to translate optogenetic interventions to humans, which I'm sure someday will happen also in in these deep brain areas, rather than doing that, we said, why don't we benefit from the knowledge that we have about these circuits and how we can, in quote, cure the behavior and restore normal behavior with optogenetic in humans, in in animals, uh, whether we we can use this to inspire new forms, for example, of deep brain stimulation. So you could imagine that uh, uh, deep brain stimulation, which is an electrical form of stimulation, can be refined by using it with different frequencies in combination with pharmacology or in brain areas where it hasn't been tried, and that this would sort of help you emulate something that you can successfully do with optogenetics. So this is a a line of research that I uh, have initiated and that uh, we are now having meetings, which we call OptoBBS, and trying to bring together the clinicians who are the specialists for the deep brain stimulation protocol who can tell us what can be done And on the other hand, we have on the other aisle, we have the optogeneticists who say this is what we should be doing. And then we try to find solutions together. And this is, of course, for me particularly interesting because, as I said initially, I'm not only a neuroscientist. I'm also a neurologist. And I do actually see every week for a day, I see patients with movement disorders. Hmm. So I'm very familiar with these approaches like deep brain stimulation. And I I really would like to see during my career, uh, a successful implementation for a new indication based on optogenetic circuit dissection. Interesting. And for those that don't know, can you just
0: briefly explain what deep brain stimulation is and how it's used today?
1: Yeah. So deep brain stimulation is a form of surgery where the neurosurgeons implants an electrode into the brain in the depth of the brain, typically in the subthalamic nucleus or to treat patients with Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. And when this stimulation is turned on through a little battery that uh, the patient uh, has, is, is having under his skin, uh, then uh, the uh, symptoms disappear, such as uh, tremor or rigidity, and, and the movement become much more fluid. And this is a technique that has been invented like, now 30 years ago and has, is, is currently used in more than 200,000 patients worldwide. And it is today one of the few interventions that are approved to change circuit function in humans. And so because we now know that addiction is a disease of circuits that work the way they shouldn't be working, one can say that maybe there is a way to correct this pathological function through electrical stimulation interesting. Well, Christian
0: Luscher, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, thank you. This has been fascinating. I think we covered a yeah. lot a lot of ground and people are going to find this uh, very interesting podcast.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Nick, uh, for having me. And I'll, yeah, thank you and have a nice uh, day.